Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 811 with Alex Budak. Alex has some excellent wisdom on how you can lead good change no matter what your level or title or role. So you'll learn one, why you don't need titles to be a leader. Two, the five influence superpowers. And three, how to build your leadership skills one moment at a time. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or some of the links to bits that we mentioned here, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep. 811. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, you can find all kinds of goodies, such as the Gold Nugget email list, which summarizes the actionable wisdom that a guest shares in a quick email. You can read it in about two or three minutes. And you also unlock the whole archive of all of these such summaries called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's a bit about Alex. Alex Budak is a social entrepreneur, faculty member at Berkeley Haas, and the author of Becoming a Changemaker. At UC Berkeley, he created and teaches the transformative course, Becoming a Changemaker, and is a faculty director for Berkeley Executive Education Programs. Alex is a social entrepreneur who co-founded Start Some Good and held leadership positions at Reach for Change and Change.org. He has spoken around the world from Cambodia to Ukraine to the Arctic Circle and received degrees from UCLA and Georgetown. Big thanks to Alex for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Alex. Alex, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hey, Pete. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to be chatting about change making and becoming a change maker, your book and expertise. Could you kick us off with a particularly inspiring example of change making that you find extra touching personally? I mean, there's so many. I get to spend my days surrounded by inspiring changemakers. But I'll tell one story. This is Ibrahim Balde. He was a student of mine in my class at UC Berkeley. He took the class as a freshman. And one of the things I teach in my class is be the ex you wish you had. Be the friend you wish you had. Be the leader you wish you had. Be the mentor you wish you had. And so at Berkeley, as a Black student, he felt like there wasn't enough community not a lot of resources. And so in office hours, we talked about that. And so in the class, he decided for his changemaker project, he would start a small little pilot program, just a small way to find ways to better support the black community at UC Berkeley. Over the four years he was at Cal, the idea grew and grew and grew. And by the time he graduated, it turned into its own standalone startup. It's called Black Book University. And what I love about it is that We often think that change-making has to be this big, ambitious initiative. And to be clear, Ibram is very ambitious. But it all started with a simple idea 
leading from where he was and saying, hey, I think that things could be better for myself and for my community. He took action and he kept taking action again and again and again until it got to the point where it's now a scalable startup that's gone beyond Berkeley to other universities as well. Okay, interesting. And so he's, is he running that startup or are other folks at the helm or where is that now? Yeah, he's the co-founder, but he's got a team around him, but he continues to be involved. And I think it's super inspiring to see the way that he's taken an idea and scaled it. Beautiful. Okay. Well, so then that's one discovery right there is that you can start small and it doesn't have to be super dramatic and it's just one step at a time. It grows. It's cool. Can you tell me any other noteworthy, counterintuitive or surprising discoveries you've made about change making from your work and research? Yeah, here's the thing. So, I mean, I, of course, teach at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, but I think the way that we often teach leadership, especially at business schools, is broken. We often like to tell the story of the single heroic leader. So maybe we talk about Lech Walesa scaling the wall, or we talk about Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket. And those are important and inspiring moments of leadership, to be sure. But so often when we see those acts of leadership, many of us can say, well, you know, I'm not naturally as outgoing as them. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not charismatic like them. Is leadership for me? And what my original research shows and what my experience teaching changemakers around the world shows is that each of us can be changemakers. I think we need to stop thinking of leadership as an act. So here's a fundamental belief that I found in my research. It's that leaders might be scarce, but leadership is abundant. There might only be one CEO, only five vice presidents, but all of us can practice leadership from where we are. We need to start separating acts of leadership from titles of leadership and start seeing that each of us can lead change from wherever we are. Mm -hmm. All right. That sounds good. All right. Well, then that kind of sounds like the big idea with the book, Becoming a Changemaker, an actionable, inclusive guide to leading positive change at any level. Or is there another core thesis you want to put out there? Yeah. So the red thread that drives through all of it. The beating heart of this book is that theme of inclusivity. In the book, I tell the stories of over 50 different change makers, ranging from a sales associate at Walmart who fought for equal parental leave between both associates and executives. I talk about social entrepreneurs, and I tell the story of a guy who just was really passionate about composting and wanted his whole team to start composting. And so I think that's the crucial theme is that change making is for all of us. And then, of course, in the subtitle is this idea, it's not change thinking, it's change making. And so that each of us can find that sense of agency to lead change from where we are. Well, so zooming into the level of professionals who are looking to make some changes in their workplaces, what are some of your, your top tips or do's and don'ts for how we go about making that happen? Yeah, so... So your listeners might be looking at this and going, cool, change making sounds interesting, but also sounds a little bit fuzzy. And I get it. So I set out to do the first ever longitudinal study looking at how do change makers develop over time and what are some of the key characteristics that the most effective change makers have in common. And I went into it just with curiosity, just to say, you know, can people develop as change makers? And the data are conclusive. Absolutely. Yes. And we've also started to see themes. Things emerge that the best and most effective change makers do. Now, the one that stands out above all others is this idea of being able to influence without authority. We often think leadership is about collecting as much power as we possibly can and then telling people what to do. But we find that the most effective change makers are those who practice influence. But again, I think the way we teach influence is often not really the right way to go about it. 
it can often feel sleazy or transactional. It's like the reciprocity effect. Pete, I do a favor for you. Then you feel pressure to do a favor for me. I'm sure you do the same for me, Alex. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I want to think about how we can influence more sustainably and for the long term. And so based on the research, based on my experience coaching, mentoring, advising changemakers, I developed what I call my five influence superpowers. These are ways of influencing that are sustainable and for the long term, ways of bringing others into your change efforts. And I've seen in working with changemakers, middle managers, senior managers, these are ways you can get other people excited about your change efforts. So I'll go through them quickly so we can get a sense of what these five influence superpowers are. Yes, let's do it. The first is empathy. So being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Patty Sanchez wrote in Harvard Business Review, finding that one in two C-suite executives, when they're leading change, they don't take into account how people on the front lines will appreciate that change. It's crucial before you lead change that you understand how might others appreciate that? Are they new to the job and scared, trying to make sense of how things work? Are they overwhelmed and overworked? Where are they coming from when they get this change? It's not enough to just be right. How you influence makes a huge difference. And I think empathy starts to unlock your ability to engage people in that change. All right. And so then we take into account how others are impacted, how they're feeling it. Can you share with us a a tip or tool or tactic or approach to get a better view of that? Yeah, so here's a super practical one, which ties into the second of the superpowers, which is safety making it safe for others to be part of change with you. So I'm at UC Berkeley. It's a big bureaucracy. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of people who are a bit hesitant to pursue change efforts. And so one of the things I've learned is to lean into empathy. So understand where they're coming from and get that maybe they're a bit more risk averse than I am. And so I'll go to them and say, look, I know that this is a risk you're taking to come along with me, but here's my promise. If this works, I promise you will get the praise. And if it doesn't work, I promise that I will take the blame. That's a small way you can make it safe for others to be part of your change efforts. That's all rooted in first empathizing with them and understanding where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. That's good. And the praise and blame, I I suppose we can talk about safety. There's, there's a number of dimensions. So, so one is the social Mm -hmm. consequences, (laughs) I guess is the word associated with, with how something goes down. If it's a smashing success or a disappointment. So there's the social bits And then I suppose to the extent that there is, I don't know, rework or extra time, money, effort that has to be applied to, to fix, to undo, to rejigger, whatever you're, you're changing that you're willing to make it safe for that person by, by volunteering to be on the hook for all that. Yeah, that's right. Or finding ways to support them and getting the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. And that really ties into the third influence superpower, which is vision, which is that when you're bringing a lot of different people together along on your work, it's so crucial that they feel how they're part of the larger mission. I like to talk about vision as painting a picture of the future that's so compelling that people can't help but want to be part of it with you. And so part of your job when you try to influence folks is to find ways to help them see how This one little thing that they're doing, which might feel so tangential, is actually core to the overall work the organization is doing. So leaning into that vision, helping paint that picture, and helping people see that it's not just busy work, that this busy work is actually leading to something much more meaningful and bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. All right. And what's the fourth? 
The fourth is relationships. So this is the classic example of something that is a long-term play. You can't just try to parachute in, build a relationship, and then jump out. But if you honestly get to know people over time, it'll unlock so much ability to influence and bring them into your change efforts. You know, I think about a buddy of mine who was recently raising money, running a race to raise money for a rare disease that had affected a loved one. And when he asked me to support him, I was very happy to do so. I jumped in at the chance. But if you were to ask me, Alex, where would you rank this disease in your ranking of most important diseases to solve? You know, it wouldn't be in my top 10. Not that it's not important, just it's not on my radar. But I was so happy to support him because of our relationship. He's such a good guy and I wanted to be there with him. And that's a good example of where relationships make a big difference. Someone might not be completely sold on your change effort, but if they've seen that you're a hard worker, you're competent, that you often have great outcomes, you know who they are as a person, you care about them as an individual, not just as a worker, that unlocks their ability to come along with you on your change journey. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the fifth? Fifth is passion. And here's where authenticity matters because you can't fake passion. I'm super passionate about helping people become better leaders and stronger change makers. But imagine I were at Haas and teaching accounting, not that that would ever happen, but if I were trying to teach accounting, my passion just wouldn't be there because it's not authentic to who I am. But if you're truly passionate about a change initiative, lean into that passion. There's often pressure at work that we have to be buttoned up and be very serious all the time. But if you're truly passionate about a cause, and I find that the best and most effective change makers often are. Sometimes it comes from a personal experience or a vision that they have, but to lean into that passion, don't be afraid to share with people why you care so deeply about this, why you're willing to commit your time, your energy, your resources to investing in it. And other people will feel compelled to be part of something that excites you as well. Okay. So those are great principles. I'm curious about what are some, some common pitfalls, traps, mistakes, things to, to not do as we're trying to provide empathy, safety, vision, work our relationships and passion. What uh, should we not be doing? Yeah. So I mean, one, and this is one of the great tensions of being a change maker is that we have to hold these multiple polarities at once, that we've got to have the sense of urgency, because if you look at our world today, so many things are calling for change, but also recognize that change takes time, that change doesn't happen overnight. I love the words of Matthew Kelly, who wrote in the book, The Long View, that we tend to overestimate what we can do in a day underestimate what we can do in a month, overestimate what we can do in a year, and underestimate what we can do in a decade. And so sometimes as change makers, especially new emerging first-time change makers, we have this great sense of urgency, which again is kind of a helpful instinct, but we tend to want change to happen overnight immediately. And then we tend to give up quickly when it doesn't come, when we don't start feeling that traction. And so I think it's crucial as change makers, when we try to influence others, that we play the long game. You know, you might get a no the first time you try to influence someone. You might have to change direction. You might find that, well, hey, I thought that passion is the superpower I would use, but I tested it out and I found, well, actually vision is really what's inspiring people to be part of it. You've got to have a bit of that longer term view here, I think, especially when it comes to change initiatives and be willing to test and iterate these superpowers to find the one that works for the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I'm curious, you have something you call the change maker index. What is that and how do we use that to help us grow? So the change maker index is the research that I mentioned just at the beginning of this interview. This is the original longitudinal research looking at how do change makers develop over time? 
if your listeners are curious to take it, you can actually go to changemakerbook.com slash index, and you can see for yourself what the questions are that we ask, and you can see what your greatest strength as a changemaker is. You can be part of the data, part of the research, and get some insight on what you do best as a changemaker. Okay. Well, now I'd love it if we could just hear a couple more examples in terms of going through all five of these principles, like someone wanted to make a change. I do that in a professional context. And then we see, oh, here's how they had some empathy. Here's how they conveyed that things were safe. Here's the vision, et cetera. So a favorite case study I talk about in the book is John Chu. John is the director of the film Crazy Rich Asians, a wonderful movie on its own, and also important in many ways because it's the first major American motion picture in over 50 years that had an all-Asian, all-Asian-American cast. And so as he was putting together this film, he said, okay, there's one song that I need for this amazing emotional final scene of the film. It's got to be the song Yellow by Coldplay. Yellow, of course, is often used as an anti-Asian slur. And growing up in the Bay Area, he said that that song changed his whole perception, his whole identity on what it meant to be Asian American. So it's clear he had to use this song for his film. Only one problem. Coldplay was the biggest band in the world. John had his people reach out to their people, and he got a big fat no. So this is the... Just like, it doesn't matter what kind of licensing or royalty or whatever dollars, if you're just not interested in having our song used in this fashion. Just got a big no. I mean, All maybe right. they, were, they were concerned about the implications of the term yellow mm-hmm. for a movie, or maybe they just didn't want to share it with an unknown director at the time. Who knows? But so there John Chu was, and he had no authority over Coldplay, to be sure. The only thing he had was influence. And while John has never taken my class at Berkeley, and as far as I know, he hasn't actually read my book, he put into practice all five of these influence superpowers to an amazing end. So he had no connection to Coldplay, but he figured, what could he do? Well, he could write a letter to them. So he wrote a letter, and it's the most influential letter I've ever seen. So let's take a look at how he used those influence superpowers in practice. He starts with empathy, and he started in a counterintuitive way. You could imagine if you're trying to convince Coldplay, you'd come in hot. You'd come with, these are all the reasons my movie's amazing. These are all the reasons you should support me. He actually goes counterintuitively. He goes, look, I'm an artist too, and I get it that you probably get a lot of these requests each day. And you're probably inclined to say no. I get it. As an artist, you probably are scared about attaching your art to someone else's. I get it. What a refreshing way to use empathy. Imagine how many people are pitching Coldplay going, here's why you've got to use this. But John Chu put himself in Coldplay's shoes. He understood they must get tens, dozens of these pitches a day and goes, okay, I get where you're coming from. From there, he started building a relationship. Of course, he didn't have an existing relationship, but he used the tool of vulnerability to start sharing a bit about himself. He talked about how growing up, the song changed his life, changed his outlook, changed the way he thought about what it meant to be Asian American, talked about the impact that their song had on him as a person. He's revealing a bit of himself, his own personality, his own experiences as a way of building that relationship with the band members. From there, he pivots into passion. So he talks about the impact that their song could have on an entire generation of Asian Americans, saying that he wants all of them to have an anthem that makes them feel as beautiful as Coldplay's words and melody made John feel when he needed it the most. It's clear he's not faking it. It's clear he really, really means it with this song. Then he uses vision. And what I love here is that he makes it clear he's not just trying to get any Coldplay song or just being able to say, hey, look, check out the soundtrack. I've got Coldplay on it. No, he's got a particular vision. 
He talks about that final scene in the film and how the song would be used over what he calls an empowering emotional march. He paints the picture for Coldplay so they can understand how he would be using their song, not just so it's a Coldplay song, but in a very particular artistic fashion. And then finally, he ends with safety. So at the time, of course, he's an unknown director, but he does what he can to make it safe. He mentions how the film had received some early accolades and also how it was based on a best-selling book. Mm -hmm. So he sends off this letter directly to Coldplay, and less than 24 hours later, he gets the approval. He gets the okay from Coldplay. Yes, you can use our song. Cool. Well, Alex, tell me, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? So I want to put forward this idea of micro-leadership. It's a new concept I put forward in the book. And, you know, like we talked about, where we need to separate acts versus titles. I think it's crucially important that we as leaders break leadership down into its smallest meaningful unit, which I call a leadership moment. And so my belief is that we have these leadership moments that appear around us dozens of times per day. Little moments where we can step up and serve others in a meaningful way. It might be in a meeting, a colleague has been quiet for most of the meeting and you say, hey, you know, we haven't heard your voice here. No pressure, but would you like to share your perspective here? Or maybe it's having the courage to say no when everyone else on the team is saying yes. Or maybe it's being willing to stay late and help a new colleague clean up after their first event. These are all small little leadership moments. And my challenge to you is, can you practice what I call micro-leadership? Can you seize these moments that are in front of us? So often we wait for someone else to give us permission to say, okay, now you can go be a leader. But instead, the lens of micro-leadership is a lens of agency. It's your ability to step up and lead from wherever you are. When these moments appear before you, to take them, to seize them, to take that opportunity and to make things better for those around you. All right, lovely. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? So my favorite quote, and one that's, I think, inspired me in my career, and I think I read it when I was eight years old, and it stuck with me. So my favorite change maker is Jackie Robinson. And he has a quote, which is, a life is not important except in the impact it has on others' lives. And that's always really stuck with me about what can you be doing with your life to have a positive impact on those around you? All right. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So many of them that I love, but one that I'm a huge fan of is Italian researchers looked at entrepreneurs who were in an incubator in Italy. And so these are people with startups, people with ventures, and they only did one simple intervention. The only intervention was they took half of them and they taught them the scientific method. So hypothesis testing. Mm -hmm. And they saw, well, what happens as a result? Here are the findings. Those that had learned the scientific method were more likely to pivot, so more likely to change directions, make a strategic switch, and also more likely to generate more revenue. Mm -hmm. So why is that? The way I teach it in my class at Berkeley is that when we're leading change, when we're leading anything new, we tend to put so much of our own identity into it. And when something doesn't work out, we feel like a failure. It makes us scared to take chances because we know if this doesn't work out, well, that reflects really poorly on me. But think about a scientist. A scientist in a lab has hypotheses. When she tries a test and it doesn't work, she doesn't say, oh, I'm a bad scientist because it didn't work out. No, she goes, okay, cool. I learned something from this. And now I'll try another experiment and another and another. And what we find is that when this is applied to entrepreneurship, or I would say change-making more broadly, it helps us take the sting out of failure because we just lean into our curiosity. We say, I wonder if, what would happen if? And that allows us to be more creative, to take more risks, and to not take things so personally. All right. And a favorite book? 
tons of books, but my favorite, I think, one that I just reread for the first time in a few years is a book called Life Entrepreneurs. It's by Greg Vanerick and Christopher Gergen. And it's all about how you can use the tools of entrepreneurship, not to scale a business or a nonprofit, but to build a life that you want, to build a meaningful life. I find that really moving. And it's a book that I read just as I was beginning my own changemaker journey and one I return to every few years for a bit of inspiration. All right. And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job. So I love the tool Superhuman, which is an email client. Oh, yes, me too. Complete game changer. I think all of us spend more time in our email inbox than we would like. And this app like truly lives up to its name, makes you superhuman. When I'm sending out tons of emails, you can set reminders, you can delay emails. So I'm not sending emails at midnight, just a super, super tool and well worth it. And a favorite habit? Walks. I'm a big believer in taking walks. My wife and I have a 22-month-old at home, and so you can imagine life is pretty crazy, but she and I both prioritize making sure that each of us get a walk in almost every night. Sometimes I listen to music, sometimes I listen to a favorite podcast like this one, or sometimes I just walk without anything in my ears, and it's an amazing way to get a little bit of physical activity, get a little bit of space, a little bit of fresh air, and a little bit of time to yourself, and so that's a habit that I cannot imagine doing without. Okay. Is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? You hear them quote it back to you again and again? I think the way I start my Berkeley class, the way I start my book, Becoming a Changemaker, is with the words, the world has never been more ready for you. And that's my fundamental belief, which is that there's never been a better time than right now to go lead positive change. When you look at the world today, there's all too many challenges, all too many barriers, all too many injustices. When you look at the work world, there's all too many things that need to be changed. But I believe there's never been a better time than right now for each of us to step up and become change makers. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So love to connect with you. Find me on LinkedIn, which is my main social network. Check out the book at changemakerbook.com and my personal website, alexbudak.com. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? So here's my challenge to you based on the research I shared with the Italian researchers. Go out and fail at something. Go try something. And even if the risks are that it probably won't succeed, go give it a shot. Use that scientific method and put yourself out there. I think you'll find that like lots of my students, when I give them this challenge, they'll find that failure isn't fatal. And sometimes, even though we're sure we'll get rejected, we actually get a yes. So my challenge to you is to go practice some failure. Go put yourself out there and see what happens as a result. All right, beautiful. Alex, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and fun in your change making. Thanks, Pete. Really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciated Alex's perspective about the micro-leadership because the word leadership itself could be so lofty and grandiose. And when you zoom right into the individual exchange or interaction or conversation, you go, oh, okay. Leadership is happening right here, right now. And in a way that kind of ennobles the moment and makes it all the more grand, poignant, full of possibility. And kind of inspires me to step up my awareness and presence to make that conversation as powerful as it can be. So if you want to check out the show notes and the transcript and the links to items that we've mentioned, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP811. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. 
You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.